It's good to see you all. Um, we are in a series, God for Supremacy. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab it and pull it out. If you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you. It looks just like this. Uh, and you can find in that Bible the book of Hebrews. And if you grab one that's just like this, it is on page 1005. We'll be there in a minute. So you might want to grab that and find it. And I have uh, dreams of becoming a cultured individual. This is a stretch, I know. Uh, but I, I occasionally will set aside my Star Trek novels uh, for something of more culture. And I had it in my mind that cultured people read Shakespeare. And so I looked up to see what, like, what is Shakespeare? Like, like what are the great, I mean, everybody knows the story of Romeo and Juliet. Like, I, I wanted something real, like real Shakespeare. King Lear is apparently one of his biggest. Anybody ever re- read King Lear? Oh, a couple of you. Cultured individuals apparently are on this side of the building. <laughs> so I wanted to read. I wanted to read Shakespeare, and not like not like jokes Shakespeare, not like this kind of Shakespeare, which I also want to read. And I feel really bad that I live in a culture where somebody said, "You know what? Let's make some money by just changing the words to forsooth or verily." Um, as I was searching, actually, I found out there's other books about Shakespeare that are pretty funny too. I liked this. Which, is, in effect, is also a website. So I might have spent a lot of time on this website. You click this button, you just click on it anywhere, and it gives you an insult that comes from Shakespeare. So just, this is just a, my gift to you. Versooth. Milksop. Yeah, anyway. So I started reading King Lear. Does anybody remember reading Shakespeare? How many have you read, have read Shakespeare? Have read it? I mean, high school maybe, even, if you've read it. Let me see your hands. It's a miserable experience. I was like, I was, I mean, and I, like, I, I joking aside, like, I, I read some fairly sophisticated material, and I was like, what is happening right now? I, I don't know. Like, I literally didn't know. Uh, this is actually just for those of you who want to skip Shakespeare, as I did. Here it is in three panels, King Lear. He ban- he's kind of a jerk and banishes his daughter, wanders around in a storm, and everyone dies. Which I think is like every, like isn't that like every Shakespeare? But when I, when I saw that, I was like, well, that's like Hamlet, Romeo, like that's everything. Somebody goes nuts and everybody dies. Anyway. All of this relates to Hebrews. I know you're thinking, How? Uh, but all of this does indeed relate to Hebrews in a very meaningful way, and that is that when you read Shakespeare, you are reading material that is just a little over 400 years old. And when we read it, we say, what? Sometimes when you read the Bible, you are reading, or when you read the Bible, you are reading material that is two to 3,000 years old, that was originally in a culture like 1,000 miles away in a language that no one speaks anymore. And so if you pick up the Bible ever and you read it and you say, what? You're okay. It's okay. Really, I I mean that with all sincerity. It is okay. Sometimes you read the Bible and it is just a slog. You're like, what is he saying? What is the point? Why does this matter? Why are Christians talking about this all the time and telling me, read your Bible, read your Bible. When you read the Bible, you're like, I don't know what's going on. The Bible can be a very frustrating thing. If you want to amen that, you can. It's all right. Jesus will not strike you down. It's just real talk. 
And one of the difficult parts of the Bible is the text that we're going to deal with today. So Hebrews chapter 8 through Hebrews chapter 10, is one of the toughest sections of the Bible. And it's a tough section because it assumes you've already read, memorized, and know the content of the other most boring part of the Bible, Leviticus. When I was a chaplain in Tennessee, I would go into this youth detention facility and I would meet with kids who were um, in there for, uh, for about 90 days and then they were going to be either uh, sentenced to the, to the prison that was up north. Um, and I have lots of thoughts about prisons. Let me, uh, I won't go into them yet. But, uh, uh, and before they, I just got stuck in thinking about that, sorry. Um, I would give them, I would go into the detention facility and I would bring them a Bible and I would talk with them if they wanted it, you know. And I would hand them, every kid, I, every kid who I handed the Bible to and they accepted said, well, I'm going to start reading it beginning to end. And no one makes it through Leviticus. No one, right? But Hebrews here in this section, this is, this is, this is assuming you already have all that background. And so what we're going to deal with today, I'm not going to read all the way through it. I kind of want to hit some verses So I can draw out like the big picture stuff so it can kind of make a little bit more sense. And then what my hope is is that over the week maybe you'll go back and you'll dive in. And by diving in and by already doing this little bit of work, some of this complexity that you might run into, all of the versuths might make a little more sense. Does that that make sense? You with me? So let's open our Bibles here today. Um, The first point, and this is the big point. Like if I said, hey, what's the big picture thing here? This is one of the big picture things. God is a God who makes covenants. I get that that does not thrill your hearts when I say that. And I want to convince you why you're wrong. Why you should be thrilled to say God is a God who makes covenants. But if you look at your Bible and you look at chapter 8. So if you're using the same Bible I am, it's it's right here. Uh, There's a lengthy little quotation there in chapter 8, the big 8, and I'll read just verse 10. In this section, uh, the author of Hebrews is writing a letter to a group of of Christians. And he quotes here from Jeremiah, who lived about 600 years before this letter was written. And Jeremiah the prophet says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now this is a, this is a wonderful text that's full of all kinds of richness and meaning. But I get that the word covenant doesn't necessarily thrill us. Like I said, it doesn't necessarily make us excited. But if you think about the word covenant, I want you to maybe replace that for just a moment with the word relationship. Everyone has a relationship in here, right? This is audience participation. Everyone has a relationship, right, with someone. Yes. So you understand that there is a reciprocity that happens in relationship, where you as a a person get to know another person, and that there are certain duties and responsibilities that you have with that person. God comes to a man who is of no account. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, just a dude in a field. God shows up and says, I will be your God. You will be my people, which is a little bit strange because it's just him. 
but out of him will become many people, right? So that, that's kind of the promise. I will be your God. You will be my, we will have a relationship and I am going to bless you, which is a great thing, isn't it? Anybody in here want a blessing? Right? I mean, yes. I mean, who, and I will curse those who curse you. Anybody want to curse? Right. No, okay. So already we're speaking language that we understand. Right? I will bless you. I will be with you. We will have a relationship. I'm going to walk with you. And here's the even best part. In you, the entire world will experience a blessing. It's a promise. It's a very beautiful thing. And all of that is kind of captured in that word covenant. The God who made this little planet that is spinning in the arm, one of the many arms of the Milky Way galaxy, created all of that and much more, steps into time and to space and to the ancient Near East, to a strange man standing in a field and says, I want a relationship with you. And as time progresses, this is the story of Scripture. As God reveals more and more and more people are brought into this relationship with God, more of God is revealed and more responsibility is given to those people because the more you know about God and who God is, God expects more out of you. And so this relationship builds and expands and expands and expands until today, 3,000 plus years later, we know of Jesus, the living Word of God who came to make a covenant with anyone who would believe in his name. God wants a relationship with you. I'm convinced that one of the worst things about our society is social media, of which I participate all the time. And I think that it is because it has replaced relationships in some way. And what we experience on social media is not relationships. Snippets. We want to see people. There is something in you that says, I need a person. I want to be known. I want somebody to know my story, where I come from, what's happened to me. And the good news of Scripture is that one of the people who wants to know you is the God who made you. That's all bound up in this word covenant. Covenant is then, I'll give you three kind of things that I I think are really significant about the way in which God makes covenants with people. Of what is being said here in this text, Jeremiah is promising a time when the covenant is going to be expanded and all the people are going to be brought into it. And it's not going to be one that is rigidly set on rules anymore, which isn't to say we are a ruleless group, but rather that God is going to so infuse his people with his own spirit and holiness that no longer will we desire things that are contrary contrary to his will but instead we will be swallowed up in the goodness of god if you've ever who's been married here the longest that's not a self-identify thing you can't just make that one up <laughs> 50 years it was so funny at the boss's wedding it was like an ODCC dance party out there. There's like four couples because they were doing this countdown of like 10, 20, 25. The guy kept going and going and going. And our crew was out there, I won't say boogieing. <laughs> we're not Baptists, so it's okay to dance, right? Um, but it was really great. I mean, 50 years, I imagine that you begin to rub off on each other a little bit. And you say things that they might say. You use idioms that they might... Like we, when you spend time with someone, you become like that person. That makes sense to all of us? 
If you spend time with God, you become like God. That's part of what's happening. God wants a relationship with us, but he doesn't want to leave us where we are. There's this pressure to, even Abraham, he says, Abraham, pick up your stuff. Go to a land I'm going to show you without maps, without GPS. I'll just tell you, turn right here. And you're going to have to believe me. And every time Abraham turned right here, he believed God a little bit more. Does that make sense? A little bit more, a little bit more. Like God doesn't want a relationship with you to leave you where you are, but to, to push you and to continue to, to push you to the next step so that you can be more and more good, more and more holy, more and more pure, more and more full of joy and life. God wants to see you grow, but it isn't just for you. The promise that he brought to Abraham, the promise that we experience in Jesus, is that he wants to utilize you to be joy in the world. The world is full of things that are unjoyful. Right? Can I get a witness? Anybody rub in, run into anybody this week who you're like, there is no joy in that individual. You turned on the news and you felt joy just bubble up from inside you, Right? You turned on the radio and was like, oh, that song is just encouraging me to be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That TV show, I I, I finished it, I got done with that movie, and I felt like, oh man, I'm just so full of goodness. There was just morality from beginning to end. There's enough misery out in the world. The reason God has filled you with his spirit, why he has covenanted with you, is so that you can be an agent of joy. So that you can be filled with what scripture talks about again and again. The joy of the Lord, which is your strength. I wrestle with that because you know me. Some of you know me very well. I am the dark cloud guy. Michigan through and through, baby. We need to work on that. This word covenant is good news. It is beautiful news that is coming out of this text saying in those days... I will write my laws on their minds. I will write it on their heart, their will. I will be their God. They will be my people. It says they won't teach each other, each to his neighbor and saying, hey, come and know the Lord because each one of them will know me. Each one of you will know me for the spirit is in you. The presence of God is on you if you're a Christian. What beautiful news that you have to share with the world based on this one word, covenant. Let's move into chapter 9. So that, like, the, each, step, each step of the way we're building, we're building here. And so the next thing I would say that this is a covenant of conscience. A covenant of conscience. In verses, and so this is in Hebrews, I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to explain it, and then you know, go back over the week and, and read it. And if you're like, Jordan, I think you got it all wrong, give me a call, and I'll tell you why. No, you're wrong. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. We'll talk about it. Uh, verses 1 through 12 uh, talk about the way, all of the trappings of how they used to worship God. All of the laws that were given in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus 16. Where in Leviticus 16, once a year, the Jews would gather together. They would, they would meet around this tent and then later on in a temple. And there the high priest would take care of all of their sins. So everything that never got confessed, everything that never got dealt with, the high priest would take a lamb and he would kill the lamb and he'd put the lamb on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place where God himself would come and rest. And then the high priest would put his hands on a goat, transferring, as it were, the sins of the people onto the goat and he would shoo the goat off into the wilderness and the sins of the people were sent away. 
This happened year after year after year. In fact, if you have any Jewish friends, ask them about the Day of Atonement, and they'll tell you that people still gather. I mean, obviously they're not, I don't think anyway, killing lambs and sending uh, goats, but they have something akin to it. They still remember this Day of Atonement. And, and what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's drawing us to understand that Jesus is not only the high priest who intercedes with God for us, as we talked about last week, but he is also the sacrifice that allows us to have peace with God. Because peace with God is imperative. If we don't have peace with God, our sins are still on us. We're still doomed to judgment. We're still doomed to hell. We have no peace within us. We cannot be utilized as agents for peace, as we talked about a moment ago. So I want to draw your attention, though, to verse 14, because this is probably the verse that gets left behind as everyone's talking about this text. Verse 14 says this, how much more will the blood of Christ? And so here we remember that Jesus was also human. He was divine, but he was also human. He had flesh and blood just like you and I did. And when they beat him, he bled. And when they nailed him to the tree, he bled, right? That makes sense? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Jesus was without sin. He was human, but without sin. And purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So within the Old Testament text, with the, with the way that people were at one time worshiping God, as I described, they would, they would you know, kill an animal or they'd send an animal off into the wilderness. There was all of this symbolism and ritual, but none of it dug into the very heart of who the people were. They could go to the Ten Commandments and say, well, I've not done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. But as you well know, uh, those of you who have been a part of the church for any time, they've found lots of loopholes around ten. If there's only ten rules, I mean, how many loopholes can we come up with? I come up with a lot. Yes? yes. They came up with all kinds of loopholes. And so they were good with the, the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law was missing. And Jesus steps in as the fulfillment of this covenant, this time when God is going to write his laws on their minds and on their hearts, their will, their emotions, their desires. God is going to change the inner person. And he does that through Jesus. He purifies the conscience. And this is good news. And it reveals to us some things about God. I'll give those to you here. There, and you can use this as kind of a, a way of maybe gauging if you're walking with God, which is a good thing. We should be slightly introspective and say, have I been walking with God this week? And if I haven't, how can I step up and, and walk with God this, this coming week? And one of the ways that we know that we are walking with God is that we have a sense of guilt. We have a sense of shame. When we do things that are wrong, we apologize. We apologize, right? We, we recognize we have done something wrong. We don't continue to, to cover over. The psalm I read from Psalm 36 is a deeply insightful psalm. And the first little bit of that psalm might not have sounded like it fit with the rest of the psalm, but it's a beautiful bit because it begins to say, it describes, it, it, it describes how easy it is for us to lie to ourselves about how good we are. How easy it is for us to lie to ourselves about how much we love God and how much we love others. And, and because of that, we need this God who makes covenants, who steps in, and who gives us guilt. The guilt allows us to recognize and to step back and to move towards good deeds. Notice that's what verse 14 says. A mother knows the cry of her own. 
You see, I just kept going because that wasn't mine. I was like, that's, somebody else will get up and leave. What was I saying? Verse 14. Uh, verse 14. So verse 14 says, uh, to, uh, to, to, to purify ourselves from dead works to serve the living God. That's what the purpose of all of this is for, so that we would set aside sexual morality and lies and greed and, and, and envy and self-deceit, and that we will step into this covenant where we are, as Ephesians 2.10 puts it, we are the workmanship of God. We've been recreated in Christ so that we can be utilized by God to be joy in the world to be life in the world, to be peace in the world. While this side and this side want to throw rocks at each other's face, you're the one that steps in and talks about peace. You're the one who points, as Paul talked about earlier, you're the one that points to the cross, that points to Jesus, that points to truth, that leads people to see the bigger picture of things. That is what's happening here. And so I I was actually, as I was thinking about this, what an interesting thing it would be to shut the service down right now and to spend the next 10 minutes just talking about what good works could we do this week. (laughs) Ignore it. Uh... What good works can we do this week? That's what we were made to do. So what I want to encourage you to do, and we're not going to shut the service down. I have lots more to say. (laughs) Uh, But uh, um, what I would encourage you to do is as you're going home in your cars or as you meet around a lunch table, whatever, even just out here, ask the question. There's like a hundred people in this room. Someone's got some good that they know about that we can do in the world. So talk with one another and think about that and make this not just platitudes that you heard your preacher talking about or platitudes that maybe even you believe, but make it something that we do this week. What good, what good can you be in the world this week? The last thing I want to draw your attention to as we move forward into, the, into, the ta- into chapter 10, another big picture element and we saw that already, that there is an eternal side of this covenant. There is something that is, that is not going away. It, it's, it's, kinda, it's a continuous thing. We see that in verse 15. So look at chapter 9, the next verse down, verse 15. Uh, Therefore he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now what he is going to uh, begin to talk about is the way, if you continue to read this passage, you, these passages, you begin to see how it is that Jesus' death functions like the end of the blood sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, if you wanted peace with God, you, you, you participated in a sacrifice. That was just how it was. And without the shedding of blood, without the participation of a sacrifice... There was no forgiveness of sins. But now that Jesus has stepped onto the scene to create a new kind of covenant, those things are being set aside. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4, is, and chapter 10 is moving into the eternality and the kind of finished work of Jesus. But he talks about in chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Like, they did not actually do what the people were hoping it would do. Because they had to do it again and again and again and again. And it, and, and it all stayed on the skin and never got into the heart and never changed things. In fact, the author here of Hebrews quotes another prophet and says in verses 8 through 7, or that doesn't make any sense, 5 through 7, 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you took no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it was written of me in the scroll of the book. Which sounds very Shakespearean, (laughs) doesn't it? Let's pull that apart for just a second and say, what is he saying here? He's saying that God was not enjoying all of these sacrifices. They weren't producing anything other than people who knew how to do the right sacrifice. What does God want? Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings... Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. What was God after? Was God after ritual? No. Because anyone can do a ritual. God was after minds and hearts. He was after people who would do his will. And when we behold Jesus, we see in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension, in the full story of Jesus, we see laid out before us someone who looked like God and who calls you to look like God. The prophets foretold this. In fact, the prophets yelled at the people and said, listen, what does God want from you? He wants you to be faithful to the covenant. He wants you to love him. He wants you to love justice. He wants you to show mercy. And he wants you to walk humbly before him. Imagine a world where every person's life goal was to be faithful to God, to love justice, to act with mercy, and to be humble. I would like to live in that world. But we don't, do we? What happens when you love mercy? You get steamrolled by those who love violence. What happens when you love justice? You can't tell who, is on the, who on the news is telling you the truth. What happens when you want to love God? Sometimes you get shut out and shut down. In other words, the world that we live in is a world that is touched with darkness. And that's where faith steps in. And that's what's so beautiful about Scripture as you dive into it. And that's why we all say over and over again, you know, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. I imagine it's probably like Shakespeare. Once you get through all the versuths and you start to see kind of behind it, it really becomes quite lovely. And what's lovely about it is that very early on in the Scriptures, we are told that what God wants is a people who will love God with all their heart and mind and soul and will love their neighbor as themselves. And in this long, messy arc of history that you get in Scripture, and in any history book that you might decide to pick up, we see people struggling to do the very basic acts of kindness. And then Jesus appears and says, I have a new covenant, one that can get beyond the skin and into the soul, can get into your heart so deep, so deep, that you begin to think and act like God. 
that you begin to love God with all that you are, that you begin to see other people not as enemies, but as the creation of God himself, that you begin to love mercy and love justice, that your heart breaks when you see people who are hurting each other and you want to put your own body in the midst of that conflict, sacrificing your own self like Jesus so that you can see the world that God told us is beautiful in your small sphere of the world come to life. That is what God is seeking to do with us. It's, it's nothing if we come in here and we sing songs and read scriptures and say prayers. We turn more rituals out than anyone, as much as they did in the Old Testament. If we don't leave this place as people of joy, committed to peace, Seeking mercy, not responding with hate and violence and anger. If we're not doing these things, what are we doing? God wants so much more than that of us. In that way, we become these little agents, these little drops of grace, little agents of his kingdom, which will one day swallow the whole world. And, and there's not going to be a whole lot of people who are going to see your grace and your joy and grab a hold of it. There's not going to be a lot of people. In fact, most of the time, the message of Jesus is this, you die. Which is why Christianity is not for the faint of heart or the people who love the status quo. It's for the people who say, the world needs to change. And it will begin by me laying myself down. And allowing myself to be taken advantage of. And in this way, we truly participate in the life of God. In this way, we participate in the life of God. And that's what should fire us up as Christians. That's what should excite us as Christians. I get tired, hear me. I get tired of hearing us sing songs about heaven and forgiveness and Jesus' death on the cross, when I don't see these produce people who look like Jesus. And the prophets are speaking to us, calling to us. Jesus is speaking to us. The Spirit is moving in us and saying, you're so much more than this. I've come to do so much more than this. What good will you be in the world this week? What joy Will you be in your workplace or in your family, even when everyone around you, and this is really hard, and this is why we need each other. This is why we do midweek studies. This is why we do Sunday morning services. This is why we call each other and meet together, because you need other drops of joy to step in and say, okay, it's not all going to pot. It's not over with yet. It'll be okay. We need each other for that. That's where the church steps in. There's a lot to say. We just uh, skimmed past three chapters of Scripture. And you'll say, Jordan, you forgot some important points. And you're right. I did. Uh, but I hope that these big, picture, these big picture things really help us to see the beauty of what's going on. And maybe when, you, maybe when you open up Hebrews, it won't seem so Shakespearean to you. But will seem lovely and life-changing and beautiful and powerful to you. The chapter uh, doesn't quite wrap up, but we'll, we'll wrap it up here in describing how Jesus has made this peace between us and God. 
which is the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of everything. You can't have peace with others if you don't have peace with God because it is partly his spirit that infuses us, but also our constant looking toward him for guidance and life that allows us to be agents of joy and peace and grace and mercy and meekness and humility in the world. He says... Again, beginning with verse 15, the Holy Spirit bears witness saying, this is the covenant I will make for them, make with them after the last days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, on their desires, on their will, and I will write it on their minds so that our, our, our thoughts, the way that we think and see things, the way we respond to things, actually becomes like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, we have the mind of Christ. And then he adds, This beautiful line, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. It is those two things together, not just the forgiveness of sins, but how the forgiveness of sins initiates us and allows us to participate in the life of God in the world. And so I ask again for like the 10th time, what goodness will you be in the world this week? What joy will you bring into your family or into your workplace? What mercy will you show to those who don't deserve mercy? whether they respond in gratitude or not. What humility will you, will you take where you go that allows you to sit in the last place of the line and not shove forward, even though you might deserve to shove forward? What goodness will you be in the world? Let's stand as we sing.